0: Hi there, welcome to another episode of a Light Into My Path podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Howard Sides. Today we're continuing our look at this letter to the church at Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2, verse 18 through 29. Excuse me. Uh, We've uh, had two portions already. We're getting ready to start the third uh, lesson just on this letter. And we're going to pick up uh, the second point. The first point. And the message to the city was on uh, what the Lord detected about this church. And then we're today on part two, uh, what the Lord detested about this church, what the Lord detested about this church, verses 20 through 23. And uh, let's uh, read those verses again, just to refresh our memory. Revelation chapter two, verse twenty. Through 23. Uh, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent. Of their deeds, and I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. And under uh, this section, what the Lord detested about this church, we're going to look at four uh, parts to it. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, the source of the heresy, the seriousness of the heresy. Uh, the stubbornness of the heresy, and then the suppression of the heresy. Alright, so the first one is the source of the heresy. And in that, uh, we see the first section there. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel. Now, immediately, if if you've been in the Bible any at all, uh, this name Jezebel stands out. It is a woman in the Old Testament, and obviously there's uh, one here that he calls Jezebel. And uh, there's uh, some descriptions there, some things he says about her, uh, which the first one being uh, that this woman is an influential personality, an influential personality. And in learning about this Jezebel, uh, we need to kind of go and see who this old Jezebel was, the other Jezebel. Uh, so who was that Jezebel, and and the story is in First uh, Kings, and she is basically on the scene around the time of Elijah. So it's Ahab is the king, and Jezebel is the queen. I I don't have time to go into the whole history, but we'll cover a little bit of the verses uh, on on what she was like I guess the best way to do it. And uh it's in first Kings chapter sixteen, uh verse thirty through thirty 1 Kings sixteen thirty through thirty four. And it says and Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. What a way to start <laughs> I mean nobody topped this guy. Verse thirty one and it came to pass as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. And you'll notice it starts off saying that he did uh, evil in the sight of the Lord above all. Now it says here that he provoked God more than anybody before him. Verse 34, And in his days did Hael the Bethelite, yeah, Bethelite, build Jericho. He laid the foundation thereof in Abiram, his firstborn, and set up the gates thereof in his youngest son, Segub according to the word of the Lord that he spake by Joshua, the son of Nun. (laughs) So right away we see the issue uh, is that Ahab was doing evil. Okay. And it, 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 it goes on there in 33 talking about verse 33, that he did more to provoke the Lord to anger. And I believe what it's talking about is this marriage to this woman, Jezebel, uh, now her she's the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zedonians, Zon- whose name Ethbaal has Baal's name in his name. Jezebel has the name Baal in her name. And I've said it many times before, and I'll say it again right from the beginning when the tribes were initiated uh, and separated, if you will, and named and all that. God told them uh, that they were not to go and seek a wife of the other nations, and even took it a step further and said that they weren't even to intermarry between the tribes. A Benjamite could not marry a Judite. Uh, a Manassehite could not marry a Danite or any of the other ites. Somebody in the tribe of Dan had to marry somebody in the tribe of Dan. And, you know, we've explained it. I don't have time to go into it now. But needless to say, this influence that she brought with her, which was the worship of Baal, influenced Ahab. He's setting up all these places to worship Baal and all that. Uh, now it has been said that Jezebel spent the first half of the day putting on her war paint and the second half on the war path. <laughs> so she removed the worship of God and replaced it with idolatry. And all, all through the Old Testament when it mentions her and it talks about what she did uh, you can see she had a real hatred for God, the things of God, and the people of God. I mean, here she married a king of the nation, of the people that belong to God. It <laughs> makes no sense. It really makes no sense. But anyhow, so that is who that Jezebel is. Now, who is this Jezebel? And he uses this phrase here, that woman. Now, that refers to a specific Singular person and not a group. This was not some following. It was not some sanction in church. This was some particular specific woman that it's talking about. And uh, the word for woman there is the Greek word gune, G-U-N-E, gune, which means a woman, especially a wife. Now, it doesn't specifically say whether she was the preacher's wife or if she was the deacon's wife. Uh, but it's very clear she was a member of this church body in some function or manner. Now, as a wife, we can assume of a prominent member of some kind, she felt she had the authority, the right, and the power to influence decisions in the church. And on that point, uh, all I can say is God from the beginning initiated the role of the wife as a help-meet Uh The leadership roles always went to the husband, always went to the man, because he was a picture of the leadership role. I mean, that's just how God set it up. This is not some anti-woman thing or whatever you want to call it. Uh, All kinds of scripture get onto that. I I don't want to chase that rabbit. I want to try and uh, get through this lesson if I can. But So anyway, we see this influential personality. The second thing we'll see is we'll see an indignant perception an indignant perception. And that's in the phrase, which calleth herself a prophetess. Which calleth herself a prophetess. Now, right right from the beginning, if you know your Bible, uh, it's not possible that she was a prophetess. <clears throat> there were prophets and prophetesses in the Old Testament, but this all stopped with John the Baptist. Matthew 11:13 13 says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. It ended with John the Baptist. John was the last prophet. And that includes prophetesses because now we have Jesus to look to. Indignant uh, as a term means anger, scorn, or contempt. So the question is, was she acting out in anger uh, or contempt or was she just doing it out of spite? Uh, It's not clear what her motives were, but... Uh, it sure describes what she was doing. <laughs> so we're going to get into that next. Um In this third thing, an indulgent permissiveness. An indulgent permissiveness. Uh, the next phrase says, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Now, this church was indulging or allowing this apostasy to go on. And... Our pastor, anytime he preaches or talks about uh, apostasy in its current state of whatever it is, uh, he uses the statement that he always has, you will become what you tolerate. In other words, if you allow it to happen, uh, sooner or later, it's going to take over. It's going to rear its ugly head and it's going to grow. You're going to become part of it. So you become what you tolerate. And the same goes on today. And, and the way the current uh, political correctness thing is, anytime you denounce anything that is against the Bible, uh, you're automatically labored, labeled as a bigot, uh, intolerant, hateful, sexist, even racial. Although it's what the Bible says. It's not what I say. Uh, it's not what my pastor says. It's not what my friend thinks. Uh, Thus saith the Lord. I mean, that's the key to the whole thing. It's not, it doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what you think. Uh, God's in charge of all this thing. So you might be, uh, you know, for finding out what God says about it. Thus saith the Lord. Uh, John Phillips, in his commentary here, uh, he makes a statement, and I quote, says, the strongest language in the Bible is reserved for those who depart from revealed truth, unquote. And Revelation 22, 18 and 19 says, for I testify unto every man, that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. So uh, it's very clear God gives a very stern warning. Uh, If you add to the Bible or take away from the Bible, uh, there's going to be some consequences. And in saying that, people are still adding to the Bible. They're, well, this is what I think. It's not just about a version of the Bible uh, that he's uh, targeting there. It's it's when people take it upon themselves and say, well, this is what I think. Or I think God uh, wasn't really serious when he said that. I think this is what he means. You better be very careful doing that. Because you're not going against me. You're not going against a pastor. You're not going against some other person that believes anything of that nature, you're going against God, if, if it's God's Word. If, if it's what God's Word says and you go against it, that's when you are going to fall under the sentence and the judgment of Revelation 22, 18 and 19. Now, this phrase uh, is a repetition of what was stated right at the very beginning in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, chapter 4, and verse 2 says, You shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it. Diminish aught. That means take anything away from it. You follow it to the letter. That you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. And then later on in chapter 12 and verse 32, same book, Deuteronomy. What things soever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. Again, there's that diminish from it, taking anything from it. You don't take anything out of it. You don't add anything to it. Thus saith the Lord. That's the rule of thumb. That's what you follow. And in saying that, uh, on these uh, perversions of the Bible, not versions, but perversions of the Bible, man is not in control of preserving God's word. It's not man's responsibility to preserve God's word. God does it himself. Psalms 22, no, 12, Psalms 12 Verse 6 through 7 says, The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Seven is the number of perfection, spiritual completion. It's complete. It's done. Nothing needs to be added. Nothing needs to be taken away. Verse 7, Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Those words tell us four things about God's Word. Number one, it's pure. Number two, it is purified. Number three, it is protected. And number four, it is preserved. All of those things, based on that scripture, is done by the Lord. No part of that is man's work. That is all God's work. And you may ask the question from from that statement in Revelation 22, 18, 19, Um, What are these plagues? Uh, Now, of course, we know immediately when you think of the plagues, you think back in the book of Genesis. But it's not going that far back. What it's talking about here is it's referring to the judgments. Now, again, remember, this is a book of judgment. And it's referring to the judgments during the Great Tribulation, the seals, the trumpets, the vials, all those things. But most especially the vials, which are called in Revelation chapter 15, 1, they're called the seven last plagues. Seven last plagues. So there's the connection of it. All right. Uh, The second thing about uh, this whole thing is the seriousness of the heresy. The seriousness of the uh, heresy is in the second part of verse 20 there. And uh, in the seriousness of it, we see that there's a threefold error exposed. A threefold error exposed. The first is that it's wrong in principle. Number one, it's wrong in principle principle. Number two, it is uh, wrong in precept. Wrong in precept. Number three, it's wrong in practice. Wrong in practice. All right, the first one, wrong in principle. Number one, he says in that phrase, because thou sufferest, and then he says to teach, because thou sufferest, and then that phrase to teach. And here's the Greek word uh ieho. E-A-H-O, and it's spelled E J A J W, and it means to let be or permit or to leave alone, and basically it means to allow someone to teach error or apostasy in God's eyes is the same as agreeing with it or letting it or permitting it to happen. They were letting it happen, so basically you're agreeing with it in God's eyes. That's what it's saying you're agreeing with what they're teaching. Otherwise, you would stop it as error, as apostasy. One of the two. There is a difference now, and I'll point that out, between error and apostasy. Error is unknowingly teaching wrong. You approach them and say, hey, uh, that's wrong. According to the Bible, it says this. The person says, oh, okay, I didn't realize that. I didn't know that. I'll correct that. That's an error. Apostasy is the same. When they do the same thing, and you approach them and say, well, the Bible says right here that. And they says, oh, well, no, I believe it's this. Knowingly teaching error is apostasy, knowingly. Now, what was principally wrong here? What was going on? What was wrong with what was going on? Now, a principle is from the Latin word principium, which means beginning. It is the beginning or foundation of an established truth. Uh, an established truth. Um, a principle, for an example, a principle of creation is that God is the creator. A principle of salvation is that Jesus Christ's blood is the only blood that works. A principle of a Christian is that salvation had to take place, had to take place. So um, that they allowed this woman to teach is the focal point of the problem. It was not that this particular woman was allowed to teach, but that they allowed any woman to teach. The reason why is clearly evident in what is going on here. Now, let me say this. I personally do not see anything wrong with a woman teaching young children in a Sunday school class, uh, little kids. I I, I think they can connect with them, and, and I think that it's a good job for a lady to have in the church, but in a leadership role, again, a leadership role, it is not the place for a woman. And it's not my thought. Uh, it's not a church doctrine. Uh, well, I guess maybe it is a church doctrine because it's based on God's word, It, it but it's all in God's um, command. God, God commanded that. And, uh, you know, you say, well, why? Everybody wants to know why. <laughs> God's reasons for why. 1 Timothy 2, 19 through 14. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel. Well, we have a problem with that in most churches today. Not every lady I know dresses modestly. Some of them push the limit in every way. (laughs) Anyway, uh, back to the verse. That women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls, or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works, let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. He is basically given two reasons right there. Uh, God says, because I formed Adam first, Eve came second. And then the other reason, he said, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. And he's not laying all the blame on her. Okay? God's not laying all the blame on her because, what does it say? Adam partook of it too. But she was the first to be deceived. So uh, that phrase there, adorned in modest apparel, it is the duty. And I even capitalized that. It is the duty, saying responsibility, of women as members of the congregation to practice modesty of actions and dress. Because the opposite would likely be a hurt and a hindrance to their fellow worshipers. If you dress like a prostitute, people are going to look at you like a prostitute. I mean, that's just saying it like it is. Uh, Weapons of Attraction Weapons of attraction. Satan has used sex to bring down more Christians than any other sin. Uh, why wouldn't he be interested in using your attractive actions in tight, short dresses to distract someone and get their minds off God? Tops are getting lower, and bottoms are getting higher. I mean, and that's just year after year. Everybody, I can't tell you how many times I've even in our... Really, and no matter what church you go in. Uh, if you If you're a lady... If you sit down, the first thing you have to do is yank on your skirt to pull it on down. Well, then your uh, subconscious is telling you your skirt's too short. Right? (laughs) Why else would you be yanking on it? Uh, The next phrase, shamefacedness. Don't wear something that should be embarrassing to a modest woman. Don't wear something that would be embarrassing to another woman. Should and would. uh, Embarrassing. Sobriety. Uh, this is talking about sanity. <laughs> Don't wear clothes that you even think might stir up someone's desires and passions. If you think somebody thinks it's going to look sexy, if you think somebody's going to look at it and say, oh man, Ooh, she looks hot in that. Don't wear it. Don't wear it. Albert Barnes, in his commentary, he says this, and I quote, it is opposed to all that is frivolous and to all undue excitement of the passions. Unquote. Unquote. My man's a man, and a woman's a man. I mean, it goes the same way. A man shouldn't dress like that. You're going to church. You're not uh, to worship God. You're not going to um, uh, advertise yourself or promote yourself. I Well, I was going to say that I think the Puritans had it right to begin with, but <laughs> maybe we shouldn't go that far. But anyway, uh, broided hair, costly array. And what that's getting at, is that it was a common practice of Grecian women of that day to intertwine their hair with gold, silver, jewelry, tissue, or even vines to make their hair sparkle and shine or have an attractive smell. Um, And I know a a lot of women do that today. Even uh, at Christmas time, they'll intertwine it with uh, um, whatever you call it, tinsel. Yeah, Um, again, Albert uh, Barnes, in his commentary, he says, and I quote, any external decoration which occupies the mind more than the virtues of the heart and which engrosses the time and attention more, we may be certain is wrong. Unquote. Costly array simply means expensive clothing. It is considered foolish as it attracts attention to the wrong things and depicts a worldly seeking mind. Um, the phrase good works. As Christians, it is our duty to follow Christ's example. He set forth in Acts ten thirty eight, who went about doing good, who went about doing good. Uh, to seek to attract attention to ourselves is anti everything a Christian should be. The, again, the term Christian is Christ-like. Do you think God, if He was a woman, would have dressed like that? Do you think Christ, as a man, would dress like you're dressing? Uh, you know, I mean, is just as important for the guys to dress the part as it is the women, too. Uh, learn in silence. This simply means that the women were not allowed to teach the people, which included interrupting those who were speaking with questions. If you have questions, you ask your husband. Uh, if he doesn't ask, have no answer to it, then, then you can go from there. But it's talking about interrupting the speaker. Uh, all subjection. All subjection. All is the Greek word pos, P-A-S, pas, pas. It means any, every, the whole, whatsoever. Subjection is the word hypotage, hypotage, h y p o t a g e, to subordinate oneself, to reflexively obey. That means you object, uh, you obey, obey reflexively. It comes without even thinking about it. You just do it. Uh, suffer not a woman to teach. Uh, Albert Barnes, again, his commentary, and I quote again, uh, This evidently and obviously refers to the church assembled for public worship in the ordinary and regular acts of devotion. There, the assembly is made up of males and females, of old and young, and there it is improper for them to take part in conducting the exercises. But this cannot be interpreted as meaning that it is improper from females to speak or to pray in meetings of their own sex, assembled for prayer or benevolence, nor is it improper for a female to speak or to pray in a Sunday school. Neither of these come under the apostles' idea of a church. And that, that explains kind of like what I said a minute ago. You know, for these younger classes, the little children, I don't think there's anything wrong with the women teaching that. But once you get into uh, teenage years, I think the classes should be separated. Uh, the young ladies taught by women, the young men taught by men. That way you can speak plainly about things you need to. Uh, the Bible talks about things clearly and plainly, and we should too. But putting them together uh, just disrupts things. I mean, I mean, let's face it. In the teenage years, you got raging hormones. It's hard enough to concentrate on God uh, with some pretty girl sitting beside of you and got nice perfume on her. Some attractive young man sitting there plays on the football team and everybody's going back crazy for and he's uh, wearing expensive cologne. It's just hard to concentrate. It's hard to concentrate. That's what it's talking about. Uh, Usurp authority. Authority here is the word authentio. Authentio, which means to act of oneself, to dominate. And usurp is from the compound out then, O-W-T-H-E-N, which means uh, baffling or backwards wind strange air well <laughs> that could have several connotations there couldn't it and uh for further clarification um the last two verses give god's reasons why he established things the way he did um the pulpit commentary uh says on this subject and i quote satan could not subvert adam till the serpent came and turned the heart of eve And Eve turned his heart, and they both sinned. Wherefore it is said, The woman which thou gavest me. Satan had no power to turn him, till Eve came, and she was the cause of his eating. Now, inasmuch as the serpent did not attack Adam, he being the stronger and more knowing person, and less capable of being managed and seduced, but made his attempt on Eve, in which he succeeded. And since not Adam, but Eve, was deceived, It appears that the man is the more proper person to bear rule and authority, as in civil and domestic, so in ecclesiastic affairs. And it is right for the woman to learn and the man to teach. And seeing that Eve was the cause of transgression to Adam and of punishment to him and his posterity, the subjection of the woman to the man was confirmed afresh. And then there is... Uh, the term submission. What what actually is submission? Uh, Warren Wiersbe, I think, explains it pretty good in his commentary. Uh, he says, and I quote, this literally means to rank under, to rank under. Anyone who has served in the armed forces knows that rank has to do with order and authority, not with value or ability. A colonel is higher in rank than a private. But that does not necessarily mean that the colonel is a better man than the private. It only means that the colonel has a higher rank and therefore more authority. Submission is not subjugation. Subjugation being to bring another under your power by force. Submission is recognizing God's order in the home and the church and joyfully obeying it. When a Christian wife joyfully submits to the Lord and to her own husband, it should bring out the best in her. For this to happen, the husband must love his wife and use God's order as a tool to build with, not a weapon to fight with. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 33. Submission is the key to spiritual growth and ministry. Husbands should be submitted to the Lord Christians should be submitted to each other, Ephesians 5.21, and wives should be submitted to the Lord and to their husbands, end quote. Okay, so that covered the thought about God's reasons for why. Yeah, God's reasons for why. Um, Now, let's talk about the second part, there are three parts to it. All these have three parts. (laughs) But the the second part, women's rebellion as howl. Woman's Rebellion as How. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verses 1 through 12. I'll read that whole thing. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 1 through 12. Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. And this is Paul speaking. Now, I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head. For that is even all one, as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, forasmuch as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. Paul has a particular way of taking a phrase and explaining it down path A, and then he'll take path B and come right back over it again and and say it again, Uh, trying to clarify things. Uh, But in this passage we we see two things first of all the pattern verses one through three Here's the role status or the role model as it is the role status verses one through two paul says follow my example uh in the relationships in verse three the head of the woman is man the head of the man is the savior the head of the savior is the father that's the rank that's the structure um and then the next part of it the parties Verses 4 through 16, rules concerning the man. Uh, That's verse 4, verse 7 through 9, and verse 14. Again, it jumps around because Paul repeats himself, so we're picking out the verses that is targeting the man. It says his head is to be uncovered. It demonstrates his relationship to his Savior. Also, it demonstrates his relationship to his spouse. That means, fellas, when you go in a house, you take your hat off. When you go into the house of God, especially, but anywhere you shouldn't have a hat on inside. Also, I'm not going to leave it alone. It says, His hair is to be cut. A man with long hair is a shame. It dishonoreth his head. Verse 4 Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. All right. Uh, Uh, rules concerning the woman. Verses 5 through 6, verse 10, verse 13, 15 through 16. First of all, her head is to be covered. It demonstrates her submission to her Savior. It demonstrates her submission to her spouse. It demonstrates her submission to her celestial spirits. Her hair is not to be cut not to be cut. Short hair was not a good sign. Uh, shorn is the Greek word kero. Kero means to shear, to close cut hair, a woman with close cut hair. The reason it was a shame was because the temple prostitutes shaved their heads. And I don't mean with crop, short cropped hair. Some ladies have short cropped hair, but This, I mean, really means shaven. That word shaven is a Greek word, uh, zureo, which means to shave, to make bald. In Jewish law, a proven adulteress had to have her head shaved as a sign of what she had done. Okay? Uh, Now, rules concerning both. Verse 11 and 12. Rules concerning both. Uh, The woman is not to be independent of the man, and the man is not to be independent of the woman. There's an old rabbinic saying, Uh, That says, and I quote, God did not form woman out of the head, lest she should become proud, nor out of the eye, lest she should lust, nor out of the ear, lest she should be curious, nor out of the mouth, lest she should be talkative, nor out of the heart, lest she should be jealous, nor out of the hand, lest she should be covetous, nor out of the foot, lest she should be a wandering, busybody. But out of the rib, which was always covered, Therefore, modesty should be her primary quality. Now, the rebellion here is not that a woman had short hair, went without a veil, or that a man had long hair. But the rebellion was any act whatsoever that went against the established law of authority. The short and long hair is just one specific rebellious act that was happening in this day. It was just one thing out of everything. Uh, The true type of the womanly attitude is that of Mary, in Luke 10, 39, who uh, sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Um, the third part of this, man's respect for who? Man's respect for her. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3 talks about it. The head of every man is Christ. The head here means that Christ is Lord and Director of the Christian man. This truth was to be regarded in all their feelings and arrangements and was never to be forgotten. The man plays a significant role in the leadership of a family as well as a church too. He gains direction not by activity, but rather inactivity. He gains direction not by activity, but rather inactivity. You remember we were talking a lesson or two ago about being so focused on the work and forgetting what the work was for? That's what he's talking about. A man, first of all, he must learn how to stand still he has to learn how to stand still and you say well why is that uh there are several verses in the bible that talk about that exodus fourteen thirteen says moses said unto the people fear ye not stand still and see the salvation of the lord which he will show to you today for the egyptians whom ye have seen today ye shall see them again no more forever how could they see if they weren't standing still Numbers chapter 9 and verse 8, And Moses said unto them, Stand still, and I will hear what the Lord will command concerning you. And that should be what we all learn how to do. Just everybody stand still so I can hear what the Lord's saying. <laughs> We're all too busy. You've got to stop and be still, especially when you pray, so that you can hear God. Job thirty-seven, fourteen. Hearken unto this, O Job, Stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. Consider. So what are three things that happen when we stand still? First of all, we see. Second of all, we hear. Third of all, we consider. We have time to see it. We have time to hear it. And we have time to think about it. We need to do a lot more thinking about it. And to do that, we got to be still. So first of all, the man must stand still. Second of all, he must hear still. He must hear still. And you're like, what? <laughs> First Kings 19, 11 and 12. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains, and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. I think this is a key portion of scripture here with how we think things ought to happen. Uh, when we pray, we expect to see, to see uh, strong winds. We expect to see the rocks break. Uh, we expect to see earthquakes. Uh, maybe we even expect to see a fire and to God to be in all that. Clear, visible signs. Lord's Smack me in the face with what it is. Make it clear. But in all of that that he did for Elijah, he wasn't in any of it. At the very end, it says, in a still, small voice. And I think a lot of that has to do with God has to make us stand still so that when he does speak in that still, small voice, going back to what we just said, we'll be able to see, we'll be able to hear, and we'll be able to consider. We'll be able to do those three three things. Now, uh, the correct principle in dealing with a usurper of authority. <laughs> uh, what do you do when you've got an issue? <laughs> correct principle in dealing with a usurper of authority. And Jesus Christ laid it out himself, Matthew 18, 15 through 17. He said, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. Don't go tell your best friend, don't go tell Barbara Busybody or all them alone. You go directly to him and him alone. If he shall hear thee thou hast gained thy brother. In everything in other words, things are good. Verse sixteen, but if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. A clarity of facts. Well, he said, she said, ain't none of that. They go with you among the two parties. And you iron it out. Verse 17, and if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. And you put him out. I added that last part, but that's what you're going to do. If there's a problem in the church, you put him out. You try and fix it according to this. You do it one-on-one, and if they don't correct it, then you go with two, one or two more people uh, for witnesses so that all the facts are there. If they don't get it straight, then you take it for the whole church. If they still refuse, then you put them out. I mean, how can they be a part of the body if they're uh, uh, usurping the authority? It, 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 there's no harmony there. Okay, um... Let's see. Let's go back to what, which one of my points we're at. Um, okay, the threefold error exposed. That's what we're talking about. We've been discussing wrong in principle. Now we're talking about wrong in precept. Wrong in precept, and that's in that phrase, to seduce my servants. Seduce my servants. Now, precept, by definition, is a general rule intended to regulate behavior and or thought. Now, the main thought here is deception. In the term seduce. The Bible teaches that woman is more susceptible to error in spiritual things than a man is. The Bible teaches it. I didn't say that. Bible teaches it. Second Corinthians 11, 3-4. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached... Or if ye receive another spirit which ye have not received, or another gospel which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. Now, this is not saying that a man cannot be deceived. Obviously, a man can be deceived. Why do you think there's so many televangelists today? I'm not saying they're all bad, but 99.9% of them are. If you listen long enough, you'll catch the red flag. After all, uh, who was it that this woman was deceiving in the first place? (laughs) Right? Now, many false cults have been started by women. Uh, Just for an example, the Seventh-day Adventist movement was started by a a woman named Mary Ellen White. Uh, Christian science was started by Mary Baker Patterson Glover Eddy. Three names wasn't enough for her. I don't know. Maybe she remarried and just kept adding the names. Mary Baker Patterson Glover Eddie. Mm. Uh, Theosophy. Theosophy, another religion started by Madame Blavatsky. Modern Pentecostalism was started by Amy Simple, not S-I-S-E, S-E-M-P-L-E, Simple McPherson. So, wrong in precept. Final thought on that word, in, wrong in practice. Wrong in practice. Uh, that's in the phrase to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Now, this listed two of the gravest Sins against man and God. Now, this passage can be taken in two ways literally and figuratively. Literally, the trouble with this view is the later statement in verse 23 and I will kill her children with death. If the first statement is to be taken literally, then this one would also have to be true. Scripture supporting this view in the Old Testament God killed Aaron's sons the moment they brought strange fire into the holy place in the tabernacle. Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 2. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. This was rebellion, not ignorance. It was rebellion, as indicated by the passage that God had already commanded them not to bring strange fire. They knew not to bring strange fire. Now, do you think the fact that they were making an offering was a bad thing? They wanted to do something good. I honestly believe that. But the fact that they did it the wrong way, they did it their way, they did it the religious way. And God said, I'll have no part of that. I told you not to do it and you'll pay the price. Strange fire was that which had been started by man and not the fire that God started on his own. So fire is not just fire. Uh, uh, Scripture supporting this view in the New Testament. God killed the first couple who tried to steal money in the local church through improper tithing. Did that raise your antenna some? (laughs) Yeah. Improper tithing. God killed them you're like, what? Wait a minute. Where's that? Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Might as well read it. We're there. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost, and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whiles it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost, and great fear came on all them that heard these things. And the young men arose, wound him up, and carried him out, and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after, when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether ye sold the land for so much? And she said, Yea, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door, and shall carry thee out. Then Then fell she down straightway at his feet, and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in, and found her dead and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church, and upon as many as heard these things. <laughs> okay, now, that's talking about it literally. What about figuratively? In the Old Testament, Israel is commonly referred to as the Bride of Jehovah. When Israel sinned, it was viewed by God as though they had broken the marriage vows. God would refer to this as going, and I quote, a whoring after the gods of the people of the land. That's First Chronicles chapter 5 and verse 25. Hosea, in his uh, book, chapter 9, verse 1, said the nation had gone a whoring from thy God. The metaphor of adultery is used in the New Testament as well. James chapter 4 and verse 4. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. So the fornication of Jezebel is their infidelity to God. It is not mentioned specifically, but it might be that this Jezebel was teaching that the Christians did not have to be so exclusive in their worship, or that there was no need for them to refuse to say Caesar is Lord and to burn the incense. William Barclay, in his commentary, says, and I quote, The claim of Christianity is not that Jesus Christ is one of the saviors, nor even the chief of saviors, but that he is the only Savior, the only Lord. The adultery is those who join her in her rebellion. William Barclay, here again, he says, and I quote, It must be clearly understood that she, this Jezebel, had no wish to destroy the church, but she wished to bring into it new ways which were, in fact, destructive of the faith. Okay, we're going to stop there. Uh, We're about out of time. And I'll just uh, continue uh, with the next podcast on this lesson. And uh, hopefully we'll get through... I don't know. It might take two more. <laughs> Depends on if I get to chasing rabbits or not. I'll try not to. I'll try and get this thing done so we can get through uh, this letter. Okay. Uh, once again, I thank you for listening. Um, th- this lesson, uh, you know, when you start talking about women, and, uh, it, it does get under some people's skin. I understand that. And I only say that not to be mean. Um, I do say it out of love. But it's it's a fact too that you know it, it's not my thoughts, it, it's not what I believe, it's what God says, what thus saith the Lord, and and it was established that way from the beginning. Um, it, it's it's not um, a thing that that we are superior in any way, uh, that a woman is inferior. Um, man, what was that quote? I was going to say that quote again. I can't remember what it was. We're talking about the rank, you know, about the colonel. Doesn't mean that he's a better man than the private by any means. It's just that he has the authority. Uh, he has earned that right, or is given that right, whatever it is. But um, I don't, I don't even know so far as man earned the right to be superior. It's just it's the way God set it up. I mean, thus set the Lord. I mean, what else can you say? You could argue it all day long, but it doesn't matter. So uh, anyway. Uh, so we finished this lesson. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, or at least can make your way through it if you didn't like it too much. Anyway, uh, we'll pick it up next week or on the next podcast. I've been doing quite a few today, so I'm trying to keep them all in the string and get through with one letter at a time in one day. So anyhow, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, may God bless you. And hopefully we'll um, have you next time on the podcast. Thank you for listening.